0: Well, good morning. How is that? Is that loud? Yeah. Too loud? Because I can change it. Um, welcome, you guys, to Oba Joyful. I'm glad that you are here. I'll be honest; I can't hear a thing, and so I feel like I'm sort of speaking in a bit of a cave. Um, so just bear with me. This is a this is a weird one. Do any of you guys? I was just thinking about this before I came up here. Do any of you guys when you get to like? the edge of a really big cliff or something like that. Like You're perfectly happy. There's no depression or anything like that. But you get to the edge of a really big cliff and it's like, don't jump. Does anybody do that beside me? Okay, cool. Um, Because I do that. And the reason I bring that up is because when I'm public speaking, I feel sort of like the same way where it's like, don't say a bad word. Um, It's not like I have a problem with saying... Bad words. It's just one of those things where when I'm speaking with all of you, I have no intention of offending you, but if I do, sorry. Um, <coughs> welcome, you guys, to Old Be Joyful. Uh, I'm very glad that you all have joined us this morning. For those of you um, yeah, who are joining us online, uh, is anybody here for the first time? Any first timers? Awesome. Welcome. I see you back there. And you guys, um, welcome. We're very glad. Uh, that you have joined us, really for all of you guys, we're very glad that you have joined us. And it is um, our sincere hope that our time together is an encouragement, um, it is uh, a time that that we really lift up the name of Jesus Christ together. Because that is why we are here. Amen. There is no other. I mean, if we gathered just to be together and to sing some songs and to pray, uh, and that was where it began and ended, that's fine. But we're sort of missing the point. The point of us gathering together in this way is to glorify and lift up our Father in heaven. So um, it is my sincere hope that um, that that our time together is exactly that. Um, and so, um, just as, a, as first off, as a, as, a, as a you know what, I'm going to turn down just a little bit because from what little I can hear, it does sound like it's ringing. Is it ringing? Okay, hold on. All right, so check this out. One, two, three, four, five, better? Seems better? Okay, great. Look at that. Technology. Um, So uh, just as a a way of introduction, my name is Tyler. I am not normally the person you would see doing this right now. Uh, I'm the Worship Arts Director here at OB Joyful, and I'm just thrilled that I get to bring you guys the word this morning and and that Scott invited me into that and and entrusted me with that. That is a heavy responsibility and one that certainly I do not take lightly. Um, And uh, just to catch you guys up, especially for those of you who are joining us for the first time, we're in the middle of a series that we are calling A Better Country, The Hope of the Faithful. And what that is, is we are looking at this one particular chapter, uh, chapter 11 in Hebrews, where uh, the author of Hebrews outlines this great cloud of witnesses of these luminary Old Testament figures that are, are presented as great examples of faith and, and and what their faith looked like is something that we ought to emulate and look look to and so uh, that is that is the series that we're currently going through just to be clear. Uh, I know Scott has mentioned it a couple of times, but I want to mention it as well. Um, As we were debating what to call this series, um, Scott said, well, what about a better country? And selfishly, since I'm the guy who does the artwork for the series, I loved that, because I was like, I can go crazy with that. But uh, I want to be clear. When When we say a better country, we are not talking about the United States. We are not discussing... The United States' role in history or in God's kingdom, or how to make the United States better. What we are talking about is a, is a kingdom perspective of a better country that God has set forth for his saints. And so I just want to, you know, lay that out. Um, and so, like I said, we've been looking at all these kind of luminary Old Testament figures, and today we get to look at Joseph. Um, and I love... Uh, it actually was kind of a coincidence. I did not purposely ask Holden to read, but I'm so glad that he did because I love when Holden reads scripture. Um, I just love the way he goes about it, and um, and so I was so thankful that that Holden Holden read this morning. Um, and so these are men and women in Hebrews who we are told they persevered in the certainty of receiving what God had promised to them, but, they had, but he had not yet provided to them. Yet they persevered in their faith, sometimes even through generations, and we'll see that as the case with Joseph, um, that God had made promises generations before Joseph. It had, not been, it had not come to fruition, and yet Joseph remained steadfast in his faith in God to f- um, fulfill his promises. So with that, let's dive right in. I want to just look at Hebrews 11.22 one more time, Lorraine. if you would put that up on the screen. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This is based upon really a tiny little sliver of scripture. This does not occupy a whole lot of the greater narrative of the Old Testament, this, this notion of what Joseph did at the very end of his life. It's just a very quick, brief mention at the very end of Genesis. Um, and so I want you guys to consider... So just first as a, as a quick side note... Um, I debated up until last night whether or not this was the direction I'm going to take this message this morning, uh, And but we're going to. It's, it, 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 um, it's heavy, it's dangerous waters, and uh, I could very likely flounder, and if I do, forgive me, but we're going to go for it, and so I want you to consider this right now as we start, and that is <coughs> you... Will die. Everyone you know will die. Welcome to Obi Joyful. Um, for those of you parents who have seven-year-olds here, you're, you're welcome. And enjoy that conversation later today. Um, but, I, but really, I mean that all seriousness. I want you to consider with some intellectual honesty, the reality of the fact that you are going to die. That is a certainty. That is a guarantee of this life. And it is likely, if you look around, it is likely someone in this room right now will not be here next year. And they won't be here next year not because they're like out skiing. They will be here, they will not be here next year because they will have arrived at the end of their days. Someone in this room, that is very likely. But what I want to impress upon all of you and myself this morning is this. That a faith in the future grace of our God, that is, God's promises and gospel are always true into the future, that a faith in that future grace radically redefines how we view life and how we view the end of life. I'm going to say that one more time because that is really the theme of what I want to get across this morning. That a faith in the future grace of our God, that is, that God's promises and gospel are always true into the future, radically redefines how we view life and how we view the end of life. So what do I I mean by future grace? Future grace is God's power, provision, mercy, and wisdom. Everything that we could ever need poured out onto us so that we can do what he calls us to in the next five minutes, in the next five weeks, in the next five months, and in the next five years, and unto the end of our days. God's provision and grace is poured out on us, and that is a guarantee that it will be. This is not a this is not a looking back and saying, well, God has been faithful to this point. This is an a absolute guarantee that God will remain faithful until the very end of your days. So as we think about this difficult like as we think about not just our death, our imminent death, but as we think about the difficult call that we need to make, the difficult conversation we need to have, the marriage that is failing and crumbling, the children that are rebelling, the bank account that is dwindling down and will soon get to the negatives. As we think about all of that, of enduring another day of pain and sickness, of being lost in an avalanche in the backcountry, even death, we shouldn't think that we will be left alone. I'd like to look at some... uh, I'm the worship director here, so um, I love hymns, as you guys probably well know. We love singing hymns here. And so I want to look at a few different hymns. If you would put the first one up. Rock of Ages. This is a verse. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I rise to worlds unknown and see thee on Thy throne, rock of ages cleft for me, Let me hide myself in thee. What about the next one? What's my favorite song in the whole world? This is it. But we don't sing this verse. This is actually a fourth verse that is rarely sung out of Come Thou Fount. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. Clothed then in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Take my ransomed soul away. Send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. Two more. Abide with me. Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life, in death, Lord, abide with me. And the last one. When shall I reach that happy place? I'll be forever blessed, for I shall see my Father's face and in his bosom rest. What's the common theme in all of these verses that speak of death, about imminent death? A sense of peace, a sense of calm, a sense of faith, and a sense of hope in what is to come. And I want you to contrast that with our culture's view of what is to come at the end. And I'm going to start. If you are one of the three people on this planet who has not seen the latest Avengers movie... Um I'm just gonna warn you right now you've got some major spoilers coming up. Um because we're gonna watch a clip right now from the latest Avengers movie. I don't, know like you're... I, don't... I don't know Here's a spoiler, Luray. That, of course, was Spider Man dying in Iron Man's arms when the evil supervillain Thanos gets the power to wipe out half the life of the universe by snapping his fingers, and he does so. And you see during this scene, this kind of impactful end of the movie, that there's all these superheroes, all these people whose Arc of narrative we've seen develop over the course of like 15 films or whatever it is Avengers uh, Marvel has given us, we see a lot of them fade away just like that. And I think that's the most impactful scene of that entire movie for me personally. Because I think Tom Holland, who's the actor, does an amazing job of showing that deep seated fear that he has when it comes, when he is faced with his mortality when he is faced with the reality that he is dying and he knows it. And what is his reaction? It is one of deep, profound fear. <laughs> as John Piper says, death looms as the great enemy and we become its slaves in the illusory flight of denial. As a society, I would say we have a collective psychosis denying the most inescapable reality of our lives. We have a collective psychosis that denies the most inescapable reality of our, of our lives, which is what we just saw on the screen. And so what does Piper mean when he says the illusory flight of denial? He means that we live our lives running from that reality, that ultimate truth that is coming our way. And we fill our lives with stuff to distract us from that reality. We live our lives filling it with entertainment or comfort or achievement or the next greatest experience or the bank account or the wife or husband or the boyfriend or girlfriend, whatever it might be, we live our lives filling it with stuff to deny the ultimate reality of what is coming. We get stuff, right? We get what we can, we can what we get, and we sit on the lid and say, this is what's keeping me safe. This is what's keeping me happy. And we live in the mistaken notion, all of us, that we can cheat death. And if you don't believe me, we live in the best place for it. Right? I'll go get on my bike and ride down Doctor's Park significantly faster than I ought to, and when I get to the bottom, I say, whew, that should not have gone that way. (laughs) Let's go do it again tomorrow, right? There's this sense of, I can cheat what is owed me. So what is the difference between the cultural view and what those hymn writers expressed in all those hymns? Let's look back at our verse one more time for today. Hebrews 11.22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Joseph died in faith. A faith that Hebrews 11.1 1 calls an assurance of things hoped for and a conviction of things not seen. And Joseph was not alone. As we see in Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, these all died in faith. These are all. This is the great cloud of witnesses that we're looking at in chapter 11. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity return, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. These people did not receive the things that were promised to them, but they died looking forward to the faith uh, in faith to what God was going to give. And so, this is please understand and hear me. This is not to say. You know, Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? As some sort of a balm, like a trite statement to calm a hurting soul. Because you go to any funeral and death, where is thy sting? It's right there. It's very present. Grave where is thy victory? It appears that it's right there. I played music for Peter Helens' memorial last year, and I can tell you the sting of death was very real in that room that morning. Life has its pain. Marriages fail. Finances dwindle. Children rebel. And death awaits. But look to Abraham. Abraham had been promised the land of Canaan. But when Jacob and Joseph died, generations after Abraham, they were in Egypt. They were, in essence, exiled out of Canaan because of uh, famine. So just to give you a quick rundown of the story of Jacob, so you know, Jacob was one of twelve, right? And he is kind of his father's favorite, and his brothers resent him for that, and he has these dreams that seem a little haughty if you read them. If you go back and read the dreams that, that Joseph had, it's like, that's, you know, and, and then he goes and thinks it's wise to tell his brothers about these dreams of like, I dreamt you are going to bow down to me. Like, how did he think that that was going to go? But his brothers didn't like it, so they sold him into slavery into Egypt. But God is with Joseph. And in Egypt, he finds great success. And there's a whole bunch of crazy stuff that goes on in Egypt. But ultimately, he finds himself as basically the most powerful man in the nation aside from Pharaoh. And then a great uh, famine comes. And because God had spoken to Joseph, Egypt is prepared. But what happens? The brothers who had sold him into slavery and who had told their father that he was dead find themselves in the midst of that famine without any food, and they go down to Egypt to buy grain, and Joseph recognizes them, and, but, and there's this whole kind of back and forth where Joseph doesn't reveal himself to them, and then finally they are reunited in the land of Egypt. And ultimately, Egypt, for them at that time, becomes a very good thing. It keeps them from the effects of the famine that is ravaging the land. So, future grace. Joseph's assurance of things not seen carried out unto his death. Like I said, Egypt had been good to him. Even though his brothers had plotted against him, he, is, he was reunited with them. They have food. Joseph has servants. He is the most powerful man in the land, in essence. And at his death, Joseph easily, very easily, could have forgotten the promises that God had given him. Because he could have said, look at this, I've got it really good here. But instead, he says, no, God promised me something else. This is not my home. And so, at the time of my death, I want you to take my bones and I want you to bury them in the land that God had promised us. He remembered the promises of God, not in the difficult times. It's much more difficult. He did it in the good times. He did it when he had what he needed. When the culture was telling him, you can be self-reliant. You can be self-sufficient. You've got what it takes. You are the most powerful man in the land. And he still says, nope, this is not what it is. This is not the ultimate reality. I have something bigger. I have something more. And Joseph, here's the ultimate point, Joseph was just a shadow of the, exil, of the ultimate example of faith and future grace, and that is Jesus Christ. Look at Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And look at Hebrews two fourteen through 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus approached his death in a confidence that overpowered his fear. And there was fear. Look at Luke 22:42 through 44. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me nevertheless, that your will be done. He was afraid, but his faith, his belief, his knowledge, his certainty of what was to come, of his God and Father, and his love was greater than his fear. And he was the ultimate example and the embodiment of that future grace. And in doing so, he bought for us what we can never, ever, ever have. And when he breathed his last, And he said, It is finished. He was declaring his grace upon you and upon me forever. Not for right now. Not for yesterday. Forever. Until the end of days when Christ said it is finished. He is declaring it is finished forever. This is a promise I make to you. And it will not change. The cross is was a final act. It was a definitive act. And so let's look at one more hymn. Can you go back, Luray, to the last slide, the one that said it is finished? This is from a hymn that we sing on Good Friday. It is finished. It is finished. Saints, that's all of you. Saints, from hence your comfort draw. The next slide. Oh wait, don't do it. Nope, I guess I only put that one on there. Finished all the types and shadows of the ceremonial law. It is finished, it is finished. Saints, from hence your comfort draw. Joseph's trust in future grace was for a promised land. Our trust in future grace is for something significantly deeper. Death and hell no more shall awe, because all that God has promised from the very beginning of Scripture to the very end is finished in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so in conclusion, Joseph and Jacob before him and so many others from Hebrews 11 died not looking at what awaited with fear, but with certainty in God's goodness. And can we do the same? Yes, with death, but also with the struggles that life has to throw our way, and as we've heard this morning, there are plenty of struggles that life has to throw our way. But can we do the same in the good and the bad? And I want to close with a quote from one of my very favorite authors, from my absolute very favorite book. That is the Colombian author Gabriel Garcia Marquez, in his book Love in the Time of Cholera. And he has a character, Dr. Juvenal Areno, who uh, obviously is a doctor, and has written in his logbook of his patients down at the bottom, be calm. God awaits you at the door. Right? Yes, he does. And that ought to give us great peace, calm, and a great reason to sing. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that... uh, Jesus Christ, you are the ultimate example of, of of that faith in future grace and that that future grace is secured in the work on the cross when you said it is finished. That death and hell no more, no more shall hold its terror and awe over us and yet we are still people who are weak. We are still people who are broken and fragile and wandering and so we will fail. And I thank you that there is grace, and that grace is guaranteed because of the finished work of Christ. I thank you that we can approach with confidence and know that you are good and know that you love us and you delight in us. And it is in Christ's name that we pray all these things together. Amen the band come, is going to come up to sing one more song and just encourage you guys to, um, you know, you have an opportunity now to respond to, uh, to what we've heard, what we've been uh, talking about this morning. And uh, if you want to talk to anybody, come talk to Scott or me or, um, you know, I don't know, Mark, Jim, um, we would love to talk to you. But you guys, thank you so much for joining us this morning and uh, worshiping with us.